Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Britt Frank is a therapist, teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist who's committed to dismantling the mental health myths that keep us feeling stuck and sick. Her work focuses on empowering people to understand the inner mechanisms of their brains and bodies. Whether she's leading a workshop, teaching a class, or working individually with private clients, her goal is to educate, empower, and equip people to transform their most persistent and long-standing patterns of thinking and doing. She is also the best-selling author of The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. Britt, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It is an honor to have you. And like so many of our guests, we always start with their personal journey. And I've heard a lot over the years, but yours is extraordinarily interesting. So (laughs) please tell us. So I would love to lead with all the shiny stuff. But the truth is, is as a Long Island Jewish girl, there are very few ways to rebel because you, you can come home with piercings. You can come home and say, I want to marry an alien, whatever. But the one thing you can't do as a Long Island Jewish girl is become a Christian. So I joined a Christian cult and left home and moved thousands of miles away in my effort to <laughs> escape the habit and the pattern that I was born into, which was extreme. But that's sort of where my wellness journey actually started. Well, so a lot to unpack there. First of all, where on Long Island did you grow up? I'm from Long Island. Are you really? I'm from yes. Smithtown. Okay. I grew up in Manhasset. When I, I played basketball at Smithtown High School. I, I played when it was back, when it was East and West before they consolidated the school. So, okay. So back up here, beyond the Long Island camaraderie. Uh, or lack of it, because I'm not a, you know, I, I don't live on Long Island currently, and I, I would not be interested in doing so. And it mm-hmm. seems like you weren't very interested in staying in Long Island either. Nothing against Long Island, not for us. Um, with that said, let's back up and talk about the the, the Christian cult. So what what ha- what, what happened there? Well, here's the thing. And I think our culture really sensationalizes the crazier aspects of cult life, you know, the protesting, the funerals and the mass suicides and all of that. But not all cults are Westboro Baptist. And for me, it was if I do what I'm told, if I read what I'm told, and if I follow these very strict dogmatic rules, I will have love and belonging. I will have brothers and sisters and moms and dads. It's like just add water and stir. And now you've been deemed as good and worthy. So it was a very effective way to bypass my pain, my trauma, all of the things about me that I didn't want to deal with. And I could just show up and do the things and be quote good and be, I mean, that doesn't work. It's not sustainable, but I do get the appeal initially. If you're told, if you do this, you're good and we'll love you. Okay. Sign me up. I'm in. And and how long was that process from learning about the cult to kind of going all in and the transition did it happen overnight over the course of time i jumped in pretty hard and pretty furious i was very good at it i was a good before i became a drug addict and went 180 degrees the other way it was probably a good six seven years of doing that and then people say well how did you get out and the answer was drugs and love addiction That'll take you out of that life and put you in another one, which is equally as culty. It's just a different manifestation of dysfunction. Look, I think 
the, the week, we could go so many directions, <laughs> but I don't want to go too off the rails. I want to talk about your book and being stuck, but you know, as, as you mentioned, I think when we think of cult, it isn't necessarily, you know, Jonestown or the mass who are the branch Davidians with that broader lens or definition, if you will, kind of see cults everywhere mm -hmm. to some degree, you know, this notion of if you do this, if you buy that, if you think a certain way, you will get X and Y and our way of doing things is the only way for you. And I'll just pause there for a second. I, I see cults everywhere these days. W what's your take? Once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. So like you said, the defining feature of a cult is this binary of us versus them, this way or no way, you're good or you're bad. And there's the cult of wellness and there's the cult of fitness and the cult of trauma healing. That one has been fairly recent that I've noticed that here's how you heal trauma and it's this way. And if you don't do it this way, then you're just out. I mean, the cult of minimalism, the cult of, I don't know, there's a cult of any topic that we cluster around that promises us belonging and especially promises us the avoidance of pain can very quickly turn culty. So any, it's a spectrum, anything, almost anything can be healthy and awesome and bring us expansiveness and joy or take us down the rabbit hole of compliance and dogma and cult stuff. Where my head immediately went was yoga. And, you know, I remember this was like a decade ago and Yusara specifically and the leader of Anyasara, John Friend, uh, got into it's a big trouble, so to speak. And there were very cult-like qualities. And I remember having a conversation with a yoga teacher about what was going on. And his take was, you know, it, look, it makes perfect sense. If you think about a yoga class, for example, you've got a teacher who is telling you to do something, you know, commands the room, the attention and saying, you know, move this way, move that way. You're obeying, you're doing it, you're feeling good. And you know, it's a 90 minute class and people are going multiple times a week and yoga's transformative. It's life-changing. Yoga saved me from back surgery. And so you're, you're, you're getting in this routine where you are in a room with someone who has a commanding presence. You're listening to every command multiple times a week for 90 minutes plus, and, and you feel great and they're changing your life. And it's hard not to one, if you're the teacher, it's hard not to like take it to the next level where you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, where people are coming up to you and saying, oh my God, you see, you know, you healed my back, you did this. Can't help but think of pretty easy to start developing a little bit of a God complex and taking it a little bit, you know, a little, a little bit in the wrong direction. So I'll just, I'll, I'll pause there. I totally see how this can happen. The 12-step world is very similar to this. And again, the 12-step rooms early in my recovery saved my life. I probably wouldn't be here. And it becomes very much when it comes to the sponsors and the protocol and the program, if you do this and only this, then you will be okay. And it does feel good to feel like you have a path and that you, especially when we're lost and we're confused and we're in pain, to have this illusion of an easy linear path of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. It's very, very appealing. 
So I, like you said, anything that offers us the illusion of belonging where we can bypass all of the chaos of our own internal landscape has the potential to become culty very quickly. And look, there's lots, I am an optimist, but lots to be concerned about in the world right now. And if I think of the loneliness epidemic, which is very real and very scary, there are a lot of people out there who are lonely and they're looking for help. They're looking for connection. They're looking for community and very easy to get swallowed up. And I did for a long time and I get it. And, you know, sometimes getting swallowed up is necessary because the alternative is worse. It's not ideal. It's not sustainable and it's not good to stay there. But if you get sucked up in a guru, let, you know, a person who is the focus of the movement and it's their way or no way. And if that's what's needed for a time being, I, I'm a big fan of there's room at the table for almost anything, as long as it's not causing harm to other people, even if it's causing harm to you long term. But to really question is what I'm thinking there by choice? Is it there by default? Is it there because it's what I've been told? But to ask, what do I think? What do I believe? What do I value is a very, very terrifying question if you've never sat with those before. Well, also, you know, if you think about health and wellness, so many people, including myself very often, just want to be told, tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to eat. Tell me how long I should meditate for. Just tell me, like, just tell me what to do. Yeah. I know when I'm working, because I've had all the eating disorders and all the clinical depression and board, I've had all of the things. And when I sit with people and they say, well, tell me, what should I eat? I don't know. What does your body want you to eat? No. Well, what should I do for my recovery? I don't know. What are your choices and what sounds good to you? It's a very threatening prospect because we're not taught how to listen to our own thoughts, really. We're not taught as children, hey, here's how you can feel in your body if someone's safe or if someone's a little tricky. Here's how you can listen to your own internal compass. And if we've never done that, being told, guess what? You have the answer in you and I'm not going to tell you what to do. I didn't like that. I pushed back hard on that initially. Well, it's this idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I'm going to take it to, to an extreme, but it's top of mind because my wife and I are watching on Hulu, Dope Sick, which is about Purdue pharmaceuticals and the opioid crisis, namely OxyContin. And they did some really terrible things there. And top of mind, watched it last night. There's a scene where the CEO of, I believe the CEO of Purdue is really pushing hard to get the drug passed in Germany and they're having like extraordinarily extraordinary pushback and the pushback was largely culturally. And what was said was so interesting. We said that the Germans think that pain is part of the healing process. And so culturally they're very resistant to this, you know, quote unquote wonder drug. Although, you know, it wasn't a wonder drug, very addictive, you know, killed millions of people, destroyed lives, read all about it, watch Dope Sick. But, but I thought that was so interesting. They believe that pain and suffering is part of the healing process. 
So from my Christian culty days, there's the Jesus heals the leper story. And I can take that to, okay, so leprosy people think of as just disfigurement, but what leprosy actually is the pain receptors in the body, the nerve signals are disabled. So without our pain signals, we never know if a stove is hot or if a knife is sharp. And if we don't have those signals constantly, those pain receptors telling us, hey, that's too hot, that's too cold, that's too fast, then we're gonna hurt ourselves. And, you know, leprosy can cause physical death. I call it emotional leprosy when we disable our ability to feel pain or discomfort. You know, suffering is a that's a existential spiritual thing. But if we're just talking emotional pain, physical pain, the absence of pain is not a gift. It's emotional leprosy without pain we are in big trouble because how will we know what's what's dangerous who's safe where can we go and so i don't like being in pain either i'm pretty pain averse but it's incredibly necessary to have physical pain to have anxiety to have discomfort to have grief and that's a hard sell in this rah-rah just feel good no it, it is a hard sell but but again i think you know you do have to it is hard work to find comfort in the uncomfortable and nothing is easy and you have to go back to like just tell me what to do life isn't just tell me what to do gotta forge your own path yeah right i think this goes takes it really deep though just tell me what to do i think to a large part is this new yearning that we all have you know if we had a good childhood we want to stay there and if we had a bad childhood we want to get another shot at it so whether you had a great childhood or a horrible one it's over chronologically there are no more parents coming to save you like no one is coming to save you from this human experience and so this tell me what to do tell me what to think i think to a large degree is this deep yearning to be parented and if we didn't get it, then we didn't get it. And then it's our job to do it for ourselves. Well, I guess my wife and I really got it because we're entrepreneurs. And so there's no one we can go to who can say, just tell us what to do. We, unfortunately, the buck stops with us. We have to make a lot of people around us are very smart. Who, you know, we're on our team and our board and so forth. We go for advice, but, it, but <laughs> buck stops with us. There's no one who can just tell us what to do. I, I quickly want to touch on recovery. I've never been in recovery. But I am fascinated by the 12 steps and specifically the idea of, of letting go, you know, let, letting go and letting God or, or whatever that means to whatever religion or spiritual practice you subscribe to. But to me, I found it so powerful personally, the idea of letting go and given your experience in, you know, a Christian cult in one hand and, and going through the 12 steps. What do you think is so powerful about letting go and why it just seems to, it's a bit of a dance, but why it seems to, to work? Can I throw a big scaffolding disclaimer around the notion? Because I also, uh, from, a, from a spiritual perspective, I love that philosophy. And the 12 steps is not trauma-informed. And the 12 steps take zero account the fact that we are biological organisms and that we have nervous systems and that our body records every moment of every second that we live. And so physiologically, there's a degree to which we can't let things go because there are physiological things that keep us stuck. So, you know, a body-based problem needs a body-based solution and you can't 
spiritualize or think your way out of some of that automatic fight, flight, freeze, nervous system stuff. So that's my big caveat. So that principle of let go only works once you've addressed the physiology that accompanies the trauma of addiction. Whether trauma caused your addiction or not, it doesn't matter. If you are an addict, you have experienced trauma if nothing else, just through the addiction itself. And so we have to start with the body. Once you turn your amygdala off and you disable the panic response, then we can do the let go. And then we can work on these higher plane concepts like forgiveness and releasing and surrender and all of that other beautiful, wonderful stuff. So, so what are the healthy ways to deal with trauma or the easy ways to deal, you know, the body keeps, you know, the, 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 incredible best-selling book, The Body Keeps Score, you know, trauma stored, as you pointed out. How can we move through it? And that's my new Bible, is Dr. Vanderkolk's work. You know, I think the biggest barrier with trauma healing, especially, you know, for people who generally have it pretty pretty good, you know, we have enough money for people who have a safe enough place to live, who have access to resources, who aren't under oppression or enslavement. I think the biggest barrier to trauma healing is honoring that we have it. And whether or not you think it should be this bad or whether or not other people have it worse, the perspective on privilege is helpful. But if you don't start by acknowledging that trauma is a fact of life, it's like indigestion. Trauma is not this mega huge thing. It's not an illness. It's not a disease. It's just your brain didn't metabolize an experience. So, okay, so let's deal with it. I think by starting with I, no matter how awesome my life is, have the right to feel pain and heal my trauma. I think that's a good starting place. You can't heal what you don't name. Right. I think it speaks to this larger idea that this is, a, I, I was given this advice in, in the context of business, but I think it's good life advice. Your problems don't go away. They just change. You know, I think, I don't think you ever get to a place in life where, you know, your problems are just gone. I think, I think you have a couple of good days here and there where you're like, you know what, everything's perfect. It's great. But the reality is that's not life. No. And to be never, you know, when someone asked me, you know, well, can I get to a point where my trauma is quote healed and I'm never triggered by anything again? The answer is no. I mean, does, you don't have to be walking around leading with your injuries and your wounds and your stories, but we're human and things are going to trigger us and that's okay. And to think that have to set us up with this expectation that we should achieve some Zen level of bliss while we're having these human experiences, that sets us up for total failure. And I'm not suggesting that we ruminate and live in the negative because that's not honest, but spinning in gratitude and positivity is also not honest. So if we all take inventory and, you know, just like in business, if we take inventory of what's true, we're going to find a mix of the good, the bad, the really ugly. And then once we take inventory, then we can start making choices and then we can start taking actions. But we have to look at it in order to begin that process. So you to be a pragmatic optimist. <laughs> That needs to be a book. I love that. <laughs> you know, speaking of books, you, know, you wrote about this idea of being stuck. And at the highest level, why do we find ourselves stuck? I love that question so much. So I let's start with the definition. I define stuck as assuming that you have enough safety and access to the resources you need. You have the power to do a thing and you're not doing the thing. That's what I define as stuck. And so why do we stay stuck? The first one, and this one is super unpopular, is that there are benefits to even our craziest, most 
unhealthy behaviors. All behavior isn't good, but all behavior serves a function. And most people come into their their goals and their intentions from this behavior modification. I want to stop smoking. I want to stop drinking. I want to start working out. I want to start meditating. Cool. What was the function of you not doing that? Because to say there's no benefits to our behavior renders us completely incapable of long-term change. If we fail to identify the function of your inertia, you're going to stay inert. So what are some benefits? Image preservation, resource management, you know, relational status quo. Some people are afraid if I get healthy, I'm not going to be attracted to my spouse. And I hear that often enough behind closed doors in this office. That's a thing that no one will talk about. And so it's just, I'm lazy, I'm unmotivated. No, you're not. You're not lazy. You're not unmotivated. There's a benefit to this behavior. There's a fear about the change. And so we have to talk about the benefits to even the wildest, most toxic behaviors, or we're going to stay stuck. So that's a super unpopular but important piece. Yeah, you just mentioned there's no, you say in the book, like what well, you just pointed out, there's no such thing as an unmotivated or lazy person. Like, wow. So, so let's, let's go there. What, like, so it's everything else. You don't, you fundamentally don't believe in lazy or unmotivated. I get, people get so mad at me when I say that. I'm not saying that there aren't people doing destructive things. I was captain of that team. You know, of course we do things that annihilate our sanity and destroy our lives and render us completely immobile. Like, of course the problem is real, but to call it laziness is inaccurate. So I have a parent who, you know, let's, I'm making this up. Let's say I have a parent whose child is quote lazy. Well, they're laying on the couch and they're smoking weed all day and they're doing nothing. Great. Who's paying their bills? Oh, I am. Great. Who's paying for their cell phone? I am. Okay. So that's not actually lazy. It's not optimal, but your child is actually engaging in a biological energy conservation strategy because you're enabling the behavior. So unless we have, again, that pain of, I don't like what I'm doing because it's causing me discomfort, we're not going to change. And so it's so important to know that the problem is real, but laziness is not the origin. It's either fear or comfort that keeps us where we are. You mentioned sitting on the couch, smoking marijuana. I just have to get on my soapbox for a minute. And you're speaking to someone who, you know, had, had more than a good time throughout my teenage years and my 20 somethings. I'm no stranger to marijuana among other recreational drugs. But with all that said, you know, marijuana these days is being legalized everywhere. And I have a problem with that. And I have a problem with it because one, and this is this is all anecdotal. I've seen so many friends I grew up with where marijuana just robbed them of their ambition. Two was a gateway drug to other drugs. Three, I saw them. I saw their cognition suffer. And then for those who maybe genetically were more inclined to some mental health issues, unleashed bipolar disorder, ultimately leading leading to the death of someone who was close to me. And so, I, I and then I also think of the developing, and this is where science is there, the developing brain, there are real risks. It's different if you're 25 or 30, pain management, different ballpark, but for the developing teenage and young 20-something brain, there are a lot of consequences we are not quite aware of. So I just had to like call that out because, you know, people think my buddy green, kumbaya, let's, you know, all smoke weed all the time and, and like, look, I've been there, done that. But like, fundamentally, I think this is problematic and there are going to be unintended consequences down the road. 
And that's the cult of marijuana, right? It is the cure. And I'm not anti, you know, like you said, for pain management or for a developed brain or whatever, but it's these myths about the things that we use and what their purposes and what the consequences are that do keep us all stuck. And there's so much misinformation. And I have a compassion on the dilemma. You know, you can have very intelligent people with really good research that says this and an equal and opposite on the other side. So it's tricky to know, but I'm with you. Having lack of information about the full scale of potential consequences, that's a problem. Yeah. And I applaud, we've had Dr. Daniel Amen on the, the show a number of times and he's had a very strong stance about the damage that marijuana does to the developing brain. But at any rate, we'll move on. So something <laughs> else I, I, I love, there's a quote from the book I love, you say balance is not the goal. And then you segue to this idea that a healthy nervous system is dynamic. So can you dive a bit deeper on what you intended? Yes. The balance thing is like chalk nails on a chalkboard because we think balance is this ultimate. And again, if you're a balance seeker from a spiritual point of view, it makes sense. But if we're talking about life design and making our lives work, balance is not the vehicle that gets us the things that we want. And the metaphor I like to use is if you think of someone on a tightrope and they are perfectly balanced, but because any micro shift in any direction will throw them off, all of their energy is focused on maintaining this precision. And if you're balanced, there's no room for spontaneity. There's certainly no room for passion. Like imagine being with your loved one in a completely balanced intimacy session, boring. So what we're not looking for balance. What we want is this dynamic, harmonious state where we can shift consciously from I'm going to go over here and do this. And now I'm going to go over here and do that. But if everyone is getting a balanced, equal share of your time and energy, no one is getting the best of you, including yourself. So I'm super opposed to this idea that balance is the vehicle for joy. I, I agree. And I think, you know, people use the term work-life balance quite frequently. And, and I only speak as an entrepreneur who loves and is passionate about, you know, what I do. And, and my wife and I say this all the time. We, we just, work-life balance is just not a non-starter. And what we believe in is this more fluid idea of work-life integration, where they're one and it's up to you to figure out the right ebb and flow and, and when to over-index on one versus the other. And what does that take? That takes you doing the work and getting to know yourself. No one can tell you what that looks like. Which is so frightening, right? Because this idea of I should have this balanced life, I should be spending this amount of time with the children and this amount of time. But it's like, what do you actually value? And if we're seeking balance, we can bypass the what do I actually value question? Because then it's let me just do this, what I'm told, let me give equal shares of me to everyone and everything. But if you sit down and ask yourself what you value, how to structure your life becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly if you're willing to get honest with yourself about yourself, which is a hard sell. Yeah, I agree. And I think we've been sold a, a myth with balance. Again, because it goes to this place very quickly of, well, just tell me what that looks like. You know, how, how much time is it work, life, kids, friends, not... You know, there was, I forget who said it first, I don't know who truly gets credit. Maybe it was, I think, Randy Zuckerberg. It was something along the lines of work, work, family, friends, yourself, like pick two or pick three. I was like, okay, well, a lot of truth to that. And the fact is we can't do everything that we want to do or that we're capable of doing. 
You know, I get sad in libraries because they're filled with shelves of information that I'll never have the time to learn or read or know. But we think it is. It's so depressing. And I love books. But we think that we're supposed to do it all and have it all. But the fact is, for the two things that you choose to value, that there are 20,000 things that you're saying no to. And so, again, we're not taught that we need to grieve the things that we'll never get to do because there's a finite amount of time that we're here. And so to pick what we value means saying no to these really interesting potential alternatives. And we get to be sad about that and we get to grieve it. But just because you're capable of doing a hundred different things doesn't mean you're going to be able to in this lifetime. And so great, now you have to choose. And choosing means know yourself and choosing means grieving what you didn't choose, but we're not taught how to grieve at all. Right, right. Coming back to stuck, how, how does one know if we're quote unquote, good stuck or bad stuck, or we're spending too much time or, or not enough time in, in said stuck phase. <laughs> so the, like, how do I know if I'm stuck question is, well, take a really honest, this is going back to the inventory question, you know, and it's the, the questions are basic. How are you sleeping? Let's just start with basic bio needs. How are you sleeping? What's your relationship with food, with your body, with sex, with intimacy and with friendship? Just check in on those areas. And if you're not like, rah, in every single area, as nobody is, the chances that you're stuck and may need a little extra oomph in one or two areas is pretty high. And so, and don't discount it. A lot of people that I see are very functional. Like their jobs are fine and their relationships are fine. But fine is not, not enough. There's more free. If you're okay with being fine, I'm not here to tell you otherwise. But just because everything is okay doesn't mean there's not more for you. And if you don't subscribe to that, I don't need mental healthy stuff and I don't need all this wellness stuff because I'm fine. It's like, well, that stuff can turn you from fine to awesome and from awesome to wow. And there's more. And it's not that you're not enough now. It's that you could be feeling better and you could be living more joyfully if you try out some of these things. So- so you mentioned feeling better and so many people are suffering from anxiety more so than ever. And, and your first chapter is titled anxiety is a superpower, which is a very positive spin. So tell us more. What do you mean by anxiety is a superpower? And again, caveat. I hate feeling anxious. I've had panic disorder. I've had panic quote attacks, what we call panic attacks. There are a few things I dislike more than the feeling of just that full body dread of impending doom and like you're going to go crazy and that your heart's going to explode. Anxiety is a very uncomfortable, terrifying body sensation. However, it's the check engine light on our mind's dashboard. You know, like when your check engine light comes on in your car, the light's not the problem and the light is not attacking the car. The light's an indicator that there's a problem. And for us, as awful as anxiety is, it's an indicator light. When people say I'm anxious for no reason, that is a complete misnomer. It's never true. You may not be able to identify the reason, but it's never true that you are, quote, anxious for no reason. And when we start examining our values and our thoughts and our choices, it's almost always the case that you're going to uncover where there's some dissonance, where you're not in harmony with the things that you're doing are about they're not matching who you are and what you say you want. So if we're out of integrity with ourselves, we're going to feel anxious. And we need to know that without the check engine light, without the smoke alarms in our house, we're going to be in danger. So anxiety is awful, but we need it. 
You mentioned dissonance and you had another chapter title I thought was fascinating. Shadow intelligence, why you need the parts of yourself you hate. That's a good one. Pragmatic optimist here. <laughs> <laughs> so I really love Dr. Dick Schwartz's work. He created the internal family systems model of therapy, which if you've seen Pixar's Inside Out is sort of along those lines that our psyche is not just one thing. Like any complex system, we're made of multiple parts. Part of me loves my kids. Part of me hates my kids. Part of me loves my job. Part of me wishes I had something else to do. Our psyche is made up of a ton of different subparts that are different ages. People talk about the inner child. And so we need all of the parts. And it's very easy. I could say I hate the part of me that uses drugs. I hate the part of me that is greedy and jealous and manipulative. But if you get to know all of the parts of yourself, you'll find that they all come with gifts. They all come with benefits. And they all are efforting to protect you and to keep you alive. And again, I'm not saying that you should just let your parts run amok. It's like having children. You know, even if you have a child who is having some really extreme behavioral difficulties, that's a signal. And if you tend to the pain, the child is unburdened and able to express their authentic awesomeness about being a child. So we need all of the parts of ourselves. You know, I hate the part of me that's envious. Well, that's cool. But envy is a, a maladaptive way of pointing you towards desire. I hate the part of me that gossips. Okay, but gossip is a maladaptive way of showing you that you're lonely and you need connection. You know, gossip is just a hacky way to feel connected. So if we don't explore and get curious about these parts of ourselves, we're going to feel disconnected and we're going to feel crazy and we're not going to understand, oh my God, why did I think that? And why did I say that? And what's wrong with me? It's like, we need all of the parts of ourselves. They're all valuable. Fascinating. Gossip is a way to get connected. I would have guessed it, it was born from insecurity. And it is completely. Okay. And I was such a gossipy, like, was not proud of the behavior, but the part of me that did that behavior. And again, not all behavior is acceptable, but the intentions make sense. Gossip is, oh, I have this piece of information. Now this person who I don't think would like me otherwise will now give me the time of day. And it's, hey, did you hear the thing? And now I have value. So building off of connection or lack of connection, if you're gossiping, it, it seems to me that coming out of COVID, coming out of isolation, you know, kids not going to school, people not being able to, to see loved ones in person, going into the workplace, all the things we used to do. And again, coming back to the mental health epidemic, the loneliness epidemic, can you spend a minute about the power of like IRL meaningful connection and why it's so critical? I am an introvert and I love spending time alone, especially now that my thoughts aren't wild animals rushing at me all day. You know, I, <laughs> I am happy to spend days by myself, but we're wired for connection. Our physiology demands in real life, eyeball to eyeball contact with other people. And it's not always available. And with COVID, it was obliterated. But I think that COVID really highlighted the need because we're all so busy that it feels like we're connected. It's like I'm rushing around, I'm doing the errands, I'm taking the kids to the places, but that's not connection. And when you quiet down the busyness of life, it uncovered how lonely, how isolated, how disconnected we actually all are. And there's nothing more powerful than being with another human who can mirror you back to you. And, you know, you, you need other people to mirror your worthiness and your value. And Dr. Brene Brown, you know, you can't 
get rid of shame if you don't have another person that's sharing that with you and providing empathy and the, oh yeah, I get that, me too. I don't think COVID caused it. I think COVID revealed what was already happening. Well, it's so interesting. I had a doctor on the show during COVID, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, who was in the, the heat of COVID, essentially a COVID ward in Boston, like nursing homes. This is like, think about like the worst of it in 2020, April, 2020. And, you know, he told stories of, you know, you're in a nursing home and you have someone who maybe is suffering from cognitive decline and they're lonely anyway. They're, it is so meaningful to them to have the connection to like their friend in the other room for their bridge game or their family. And all of a sudden someone would test positive, you know, they would, people will be greeting them in hazmat suits. They would be quarantined. They were isolated from the real world. And these people ended up dying. And the, the question he raised, and I thought was so interesting that we discussed is look, COVID obviously killed a lot of people, but in those situations, how much of it was COVID, the virus, versus the idea that someone, you, you took away someone's connection to the real world so quickly, what killed them? It, it's so tricky, right? And we know that in the absence of connection, we suffer. And there's a really fascinating study done that, you know, there was a natural disaster overseas and a team of American trauma specialists swooped in to help the people with what would surely be after such a huge disaster, rampant PTSD and crazy symptoms. But they found that the people did fine because they had community and community was such a strong value that even in the face of this completely horrific natural disaster, they had each other, they took care of each other and they did okay. And so because we don't have that value, we didn't have that value pre-COVID and we're just now starting to validate how important it is. I do think that type of loneliness and that type of depression can be fatal in those cases, for sure. Yes. And like every once in a while, you see that viral story uh, on the internet where, you know, there's been a couple married for 70 years. One of them, you know, they're in their nineties and the wife or the husband dies. And then a day or so later, the, the spouse dies of a broken heart. See it all the time. End of the notebook. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. Not a happy ending for Ryan Gosling and Rachel. <laughs> Rachel McAdams. I'm so still I think sad every, about it, that. Rachel McAdams. <laughs> it worked. I think it worked out for everyone. I think it worked out for everyone. What was it? You know, if you think about it, someone once said to me, it was in a film class. I took it. It was like one of the only classes I really liked at Columbia. It was a history of cinema. I actually went to it. Most great love stories don't have happy endings. If you think about it. Oh, we're going down the super optimist routes. Yeah. No, they don't. R Romeo and Juliet, love story, the notebook. Like we can go on and on. like a lot of them don't have. You use the word love, right? So Romeo and Juliet, I had a whole section on this in my book, but I took it out. They were 13 and they knew each other for 72 hours. And so that's pathology. And in love story, <laughs> love means never having to say you're sorry. Like, what kind of crap is that? Like, okay, so what we call, and this is problematic too, what we call the great epic romances of our time are often really pathological, dysfunctional, toxic, codependent kinds of things and we need to redefine what does love actually mean 
Because Beauty and the Beast is a Stockholm Syndrome, narcissistic abuse, falling in love with your captor tale. Like, it's bad. We can deconstruct all of our great love stories and be like, that's not what it should be. So so for someone who's, you know, I'm blessed, I'm happily married going on, uh, God, it's going to be 13 years. I'm not in the dating game, but I... You know, I, I, I hear from friends, I, I read and I think of all the apps and all the, like everything. I'm like, oh my God, this is, I don't know how, on one hand it's wonderful, but on the other hand, wow, this is overwhelming. How do you think about dating and culture in, in 2022? <laughs> and I've been married now for two years. So I've been in that crazy dating swirl and it's, I think the problem is we don't approach dating with the same discipline that we approach our careers and our business. And when I work with clients who are interested in dating, we need a strategy and we have to start with, you know, what are your non-negotiables? What are your, what are your red lights? What are your yellow lights? What are your green lights? What are your, you know, red flags that if you know on the front end that dating is going to create this chemical cocktail of just like bliss that will make you completely unaware of the red flags, plan for that on the front end. We know that like couple cocaine is a brain state in the first six months of a relationship. So plan on the front ends that you're not going to be able to see anything. Get your trusted friends. That's why we need connection to surround you so they can tell you, hey, we're seeing this. We're noticing this because you're not going to be able to see it is again, it's a physiological state of drug addiction we get into temporarily, hopefully, when we date. And that's not talked about at all, not nearly enough. It's interesting. You mentioned strategy. And look, I did I, I did a lot wrong in terms of relationships until I finally got it right with Colleen. But before we met, I actually, this is very, you know, metaphysical. I, I, I probably read it in like an Eckhart Tolle book or something, but I actually put together a list of the qualities I wanted. And Colleen like checked every, and I, I went back to the list later. I was like, oh my God, I really, you know, for the most part, I, I got this right. So I had a strategy finally. And that matters. My husband and I both shared our lists with each other later on in our relationship. And again, the lists are not, he has to be six, four and blonde hair and blue eyes right. and make 150,000 a year. Like we're talking about values and qualities. You know, for me, I'm a hardcore introvert. I need an inordinate amount of alone time. I would not work in a relationship with someone that wanted to talk to me all day. I talk to, I don't text with my friends, with my husband. I'm not a texter. I'm not a phone call person. I talk to people all day for work, which I love love. But as, as wonderful as any man might be, if he wanted to talk to me during the day, that relationship wouldn't work. So let's know that on the front end so we can sort and, you know, my husband travels for work and he's an extrovert and he likes to go places and meet people. And that works for us because I'm happy to stay home and he's happy to go out. And we need to know the compatibility issue. It's not sexy to talk about values and compatibility and dissonance, but it's important because it'll take a lot of the stupid stuff and not all the time wasty stuff and put it aside if we can start with well what's really true again self-honesty self-awareness what's really true for you about you and is that person gonna harmonize with that instead of trying to jam it into this pseudo notion of love and romance <laughs> so on that note some people will say opposites attract some people will say, no, not, that's not at all the case. Some will go to, oh God, the Myers-Briggs in terms of compatibility. Others will go to the stars, they'll go to astrology. In your opinion, what are the non-negotiables? You know, you mentioned values. Like, what are the non-negotiables if you're looking for uh, a, a long-term 
meaningful, fulfilling relationship. The, you know, it takes a village to raise a child idea. I mean, it takes a village to sustain a relationship. So if you don't have the infrastructure of your own friends and your own hobbies and your own wellness practices and your own mental hygiene stuff, if you don't have that in place before you enter a relationship, the likelihood that relationship will be functional or sustainable is pretty low. And we do it backwards. Once I meet my mates, then my life can begin. And it's no, you have to build a life that can sustain the ups and downs of the brain chemistry that comes along with a new relationship. And, you know, the relationship doesn't fix anything. And like attracts like. So however emotionally health, and this is not an always every for everyone, but generally your level of emotional health and functionality will find, it may manifest in different ways, but like attracts like, you know, water seeks its own level, that kind of theory, but a non-negotiable for anybody, regardless of your values should be if we're, I don't like should, but if we're talking just like how we're structured and how we're built should be build your life and make sure that your life is working before you attach yourself to another human. Got to have your house in order. It's so cliche, but it's true. And what do you say, you know, I am far from being a relationship expert, but whenever I would hear from friends early on in their relationship that like they were fighting a lot or, you know, going to couples therapy and they were on, and they were older, you know, in their thirties or so on, it was like month three. My unsolicited opinion would would always be, things are pretty good right now. If you're having issues now, wait until shit hits the fan. Like no one's dying. Everyone, you know, no one's out of work. You don't have kids. You don't have a more, like if you're having issues now for like, you don't have a shot. Like, is that, is my unprofessional take correct? (laughs) Your anecdotal take is absolutely correct. And you know, Conflict is inevitable in relationships, but fighting is never necessary. If you're fighting, that's because there's a skill level that has not been achieved. You know, again, conflict and shit hitting the fan, that'll always happen. But this very unskillful way we've been taught to scream at each other and fight with each other, that's been normalized in all of our stories, TV shows, movies, whatever. But the screaming, yelling thing doesn't work. And so I would say if you're doing that early in your relationship, maybe hit pause and start to develop the skill set that you're going to need to sustain the ups and downs of life within the relationship. Well said. So in closing, I want to bring it back to stuck. And in the spirit of just telling people what to do, let's try to tell people what to do. (laughs) So for all of our listeners who, you know, are going to find themselves stuck, what advice do you have when we feel like we're stuck? Like, how, how do we get some inertia? How do we start moving? What, what are the non-negotiables to, to start moving forward? Okay, here's the prescriptive. Here's what you do. The first question most people ask with whatever their stuck thing is, is why am I doing this? Why am I feeling this way? That is not the starting question. You don't walk up to a burning building and ask, why is this building on fire? Like the first question is, what do we need to do to get the people out? Who's in there? Let's get them out. We'll figure out why later. So this analysis paralysis introspection thing is not the starting place. So if you're stuck and you're asking, why am I stuck? Switch that why question, just toss it and change it to a what question. Instead of why am I stuck? It's what are my actual choices right now? What are my resources? And then, and this one's the kicker of that list of options. What am I willing to say yes to today? no matter how small, but stuck turns into unstuck the second you say yes to 
anything of any degree in any direction. So what are my choices and resources? And of those, what can I say yes to today? And then don't beat yourself up. If today's not your day to run a marathon, take a walk around the block, check. Now you're unstuck. And then tomorrow do another thing and then do another thing. So change your whys to what's and you'll be able to get rolling a lot faster. I love it. Britt, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.